right, opening your Bibles tonight to the book of Nehemiah, chapter number 2. Nehemiah, chapter number 2 tonight. And uh, I want to preach to you on the topic, the burden to build. Nehemiah, chapter number 2. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with the book of Nehemiah, it chronicles for us the rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. After that, uh, the children of Israel had been taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the uh, king of Babylon, and for 70 years been in captivity before the Medes and the Persians allowed them to go back and to rebuild the temple, which is uh, what the book of Ezra chronicles for us. And then, of course, the walls to the city of Jerusalem uh, through Nehemiah and his efforts. And so tonight I just want to preach to you, and I hope I'll be a help to you this evening. And in chapter number 2, we kind of have the beginning, really, of the narrative of the rebuilding of these walls. Now, in chapter number 1, we have what God is doing in Nehemiah's heart. And that's important. Uh, you know, anything you do, it begins in the heart. It doesn't matter what it is, and if your heart's not in it, you're not going to do much of a job. It doesn't matter what it is, uh, your heart has to be in it. And uh, this work that God was going to do began in the heart of Nehemiah. And that's where great things are accomplished. Out of it cometh forth the issues of life. But uh, in chapter number 2, we kind of have the beginning of the narrative, how this began to come to pass. Uh, the burden has been given to Nehemiah. The prayer has been prayed. He's been waiting on God, and God answers in chapter number 2 and begins to work. And I want to begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter 2. The Bible says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was set before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto him, the queen also sitting by him. You know why the Bible says that, don't you? Because he looked over her and she said, go ahead, honey. Amen. It says, uh, for how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with men, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant of the the servant the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I want you to notice here carefully. And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, 
Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire." Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build, so they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build, but ye have no portion nor right nor memorial in Jerusalem. Let's pray together this evening. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'd ask that you'd bless your word tonight, Lord, in a mighty way. God, I'd ask that you'd speak to each and every heart according to your will. Father, we have a need for you to reach down from heaven and touch our lives this evening and to speak to our hearts that which is most needful. So, Father, we submit ourselves unto you. Now, help us throughout the service to be attentive, Lord, and also to be sincere as we listen and apply these truths to our heart. May the Holy Ghost have liberty this evening in the service. Give me power and unction as I preach. And, Father, may your will be accomplished in all that we do. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we've read all of chapter 2, and I realize it was a bit of Scripture for us to read, I want to draw your focus in on the task that Nehemiah is doing. Now, there's a lot of things you can learn from the book of Nehemiah. In fact, it's probably one of the uh, uh, easiest understood or uh, reach, uh, easiestly attained or reached books in all the Word of God. What I mean by that is this. You can just skim through it, and there's so many valuable truths and lessons that you don't even have to dig deep for. You can just find them right Right on the surface. We can learn things about God's faithfulness to His chosen people, Israel. And by the way, I still believe they're God's chosen people. I believe there's a veil over their eyes. I believe they're in need of the gospel. But I don't believe that God's cast off Israel. I believe they're still the apple of His eye. We can learn some things about just practical faithfulness in our life in building and in serving God. We can learn about work in the church and pushing forward and trying to grow the cause of Christ and do things for the Lord. But tonight I want to take a slightly different approach. You know, as I read this passage and I think of the idea of building, it occurs to me that me and you ought to be in a perpetual state of building concerning our own spirituality. 
Do you know that everything in this world is either living or dying? It's growing or dying. There is no neutrality about the matter. We just rolled the odometer over 2013, and we've got a fresh year in front of us. And I believe it encourages us to remember and recollect and look back over this past year. There's some of us that may have gained ground in 2013 and praise His holy name for it. There may be some of us that have lost ground in 2013. God help us to gain it back. But I believe it behooves all of us to examine our life and ask ourselves, am I growing in my relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, in a lot of ways, you look at the city of Jerusalem and it can be likened unto the believer. It was a pagan city at one time. It was a city that was overtook by sin and by Satan. But God, through His miraculous hand, delivered the city of Jerusalem. Uh, not only was it delivered in a miraculous way, but it was reigned over by a significant king. King David, of course, uh, his throne was in Jerusalem. And one day, I'm thankful that uh, the Lord's coming back to reign on that throne once again. Uh, but, you know, in a lot of ways, we have a significant king that ought to reign over our lives, too. And that's the king of kings, Lord of lords. The devil don't want me to preach this tonight. You can hear that, can't you? Let's see if we can figure that out. Uh, we've got a significant king that seeks to rule over our lives. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the city of Jerusalem can be likened unto the believer in that the world has a desire to trample it underfoot. I think we see that every day. I mean, you look around at the nation of Israel and you'll see the most hated nation in all of the world. Why is it that this little strip of land, basically insignificant, would be the fertile ground for so much violence and war and chaos and hatred the way that it is today. Why are they fighting over that little piece of land? I'll tell you why, because it means something to God. You know why the world is interested in wrecking your life? You know why the devil is interested in destroying you? It's because you mean something to God. That's why. Because there's an enmity between the world and between God, the Bible says, and the devil's just looking to destroy anything that belongs to Jesus Christ. Not only is it a picture of Jerusalem in that way, but also, uh, you you know, it's called the city of God. It's going to be the abode of God upon this earth. And it was the abode of God uh, upon this earth at one time and will be again. Do you know as the believer that Jesus Christ, in a sense, dwells within each and every one of us? Now, I'm aware that He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But He also said that I would be in you and you in me and us in the Father. And so in a, in, in a, in a way, uh, we find that we are the residents of the Spirit of Christ in this world. And so when Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, when I see that, it just pictures in my mind the work that you and I ought to be doing on our Christian walk and in our Christian life. As he walks through this city in the midst of the night, God begins to stir and, and begins to solidify and form the vision in his mind. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, but as a pastor, sometimes God gives you a vision in detail. And when I say a vision, I don't mean uh, being slain in a spirit and seeing something. But I mean when God presses an idea or a cause or a purpose upon your heart. Sometimes he does it in a vague way. Sometimes he does it in a detailed way. But sometimes when he does it in that vague way, he'll begin to to walk along beside you and begin to formulate the plan and the thoughts in your mind. And that's what God is doing for Nehemiah in this passage. It was vitally important that Nehemiah rebuild these walls. 
Why is it that Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a man that had a good job. He was the king's cupbearer. He was in a far and distant land. There was no reason to believe that Israel or Jerusalem would have been upon his mind. It was, uh, we might say, smooth sailing for Nehemiah. And yet God stirs this in his heart and he begins to be concerned about these walls. He says, I want to rebuild these walls. I believe it's important to rebuild them. Do you know that in your life and mine, we have the same important reasons to work on our spiritual walk that Nehemiah had to rebuild these walls? Let me give you three of them very quickly before we get into the message. I believe one of the reasons that Nehemiah wanted to rebuild these walls is because of the duty that he held. He had a responsibility. Do you know that not everybody that has a responsibility is living up to that responsibility? I mean, isn't that true? Let me ask you something. You ever work in a, in, in a secular workplace and, and you knew some people that when they worked, they worked till five. And you knew other people when they worked, they worked till finish. You know what I'm talking about. You know, some people, my daddy always told me growing up, and, and it's always stuck with me, he said, son, when you work, you're going to find some people that are going to make a living trying to do as little as they possibly can. And I think you've probably worked with people that are that way, just trying to get through, just trying to get by. And hey, just because other people aren't trying to go forward for Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean we don't have a duty and a responsibility to do so. Nehemiah could have looked around and said, you know, there's a lot of other people that ought to be rebuilding those walls. Nehemiah could have looked around and said, you know, that really ought to fall to someone else's feet. But he said, no, I have a duty to perform. You and I, we have a responsibility to tend to our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just a recommendation. It's a responsibility. The Bible calls us debtors. Do you know why we're debtors? Because we had one that paid our debt for us. We didn't get out of debt when that happened. We just changed who we was indebted to. Do you hear me tonight? Uh, we used to be indebted to sin and death and to the devil. Now we have liberty through Jesus Christ. But Paul said he was the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He just changed who he owed his debt to. We have a duty and a responsibility. But I would say not only because of the duty that we hold, but because of the danger the danger that we're heading towards if we don't. Really, what was the motivation that Nehemiah had? What was he doing this for? Uh, For 70 years, this city had laid waste and no one had been concerned about rebuilding the walls. But why is it? As you read the whole book of Nehemiah, you'll find that his major concern was that there was a remnant of people that were there in Jerusalem worshiping. They had rebuilt the temple and the walls left them exposed. There was a danger that someone would come in and assault them. There was a danger, listen carefully to what I say, there was a danger that what remained would be destroyed. Listen carefully to me tonight. You may have lost some ground in your walk with Christ over the past year, but you better be careful because there's some other things that the devil could destroy if you don't fix it now. There's a danger to not maintaining our relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a danger to not maintaining a prayer life, maintaining a study time, maintaining a gospel witness in our everyday life. There is a danger to these things because there's an enemy that seeks to destroy us. Not only because of that, but I would say because of the day that we're heading towards. Nehemiah understood that if Jerusalem was ever going to be what it had to be, it had to meet up to the scrutiny and to the standards. If they were ever going to have a king on the throne again, they had to meet up to the standards. Do you know that you and I, we're heading towards a day when we're going to have to answer to our king too? 
The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, talks about us building uh, the life that we have for Jesus Christ. And it talks about the foundation that's been laid in Jesus Christ. And Paul gives this exhortation. He said, let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. We better be careful how we live our life because one of these days we're going to have to give an answer to everything that we've done. It may be sufficient to us now just to make excuses. On that day it won't be. Uh, There's a reason I believe that that man in the book of Matthew that has no wedding garment is speechless when he stands uh, before the king. It's because he didn't have no excuse for not getting a wedding garment in the first place. You ever, and I know I'm not quite there with with, uh, my child yet. I mean, he don't make no excuses. He don't make nothing but noise and dirty diapers, you know. But, uh, you know, I I remember in growing up that there'd be times when my parents would ask me, say, why did you do that? They knew I didn't have no reason. Amen. They knew there was no reason. I had no excuse excuse. I had nothing to say, and so I was speechless, and I just had to give them that dumb look that you parents hate your teenagers giving to you, because it means they didn't know. They had no reason, no excuse. There is a day of accountability that we're heading towards, and how we live our life is going to determine what that day is going to mean for us. So I believe we have a responsibility, and let me just give you a few things tonight that I believe will help you that I see that Nehemiah did. Read again with me in verse number 11. The Bible says, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. Notice this in verse 13. So I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls. I want you to notice that. Viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Let me say the first thing we have to do if we're going to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ is we're going to have to be willing to inspect a breach that has come into our walls. We're going to have to be willing to open our eyes and admit when there's something in our life that's not what it used to be. Let me tell you something. The most wicked sin you'll find throughout all the Word of God, it's not sodomy, it's not drunkenness, uh, it's not adultery or fornication. You know what the most wicked sin through all the Word of God is? It's that wicked sin of pride. Pride. What was it that caused Satan to fall? He said, I will lift up myself. I will arise. I will ascend. It was pride. What was it that got them in the Garden of Eden when Satan came along uh, and said that uh, the Lord uh, doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof ye shall become as gods? They wanted to be God. They wanted to call the shots. They thought they were smart enough to do it. Pride is really at the heart and source of every sin that we commit. Only by pride cometh contention. If you've got a contention with God, pride has come into the scene somewhere, somehow. We sin because we believe we know better than God. We sin because we believe we can get away with it because we're smarter than God. We sin because we believe it won't affect us like God said it would because we're stronger than God. Really, pride is at the heart of it all. And I'll tell you what keeps us from getting closer to Christ. We don't want to admit that we need to get closer to Christ. We don't want to admit to it. I'll tell you this right now, friend. It don't matter how close you are to Jesus Christ. You can and need to get closer. It doesn't matter where you're at in your Christian walk. You say, preacher, I've been saved for 20 years, 30 years, uh, 40 years. Well, God bless you. That's wonderful. That doesn't mean you can't draw closer. We've got to be willing to be honest. There's some of us, listen carefully, there's some of us ain't reading our Bibles like we used to. There's some of us ain't praying like I knew we'd get quiet. That's okay. There's some of us ain't praying like we ought to and like we used to. 
Though some of us aren't giving like we ought to, like we used to. Some of us ain't witnessing like we ought to and like we used to. And it might even go in the opposite direction. I'm not talking about sins of omission. I'm talking about sins of commission now. There's some of us that have let some things in our life that are slowly corroding our walk with Christ. But we're too prideful to admit there's a problem. Nehemiah had to walk around. and uh, The Bible uses the term breach over and over again. The breach is a hole, essentially. It's a weak point. It's a spot that is susceptible to the enemy. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Are there some things in your life that give Satan an advantage over you? The Bible tells us in Romans 13, 14, But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We've got to be on guard because the devil's going to throw everything he can at us. The flesh already wants to do what the devil wants, and the world's going to try to glamorize it. We've got to get serious about this thing. We've got to be honest enough, and that's where we struggle. We don't want to be honest. We want to lie to God. We want to lie to the Holy Ghost. We want to pretend like everything's fine. When if we were to really be honest, we'd have to admit there's some things in our life that God's dealt with us about that we're too stubborn, too prideful to get out of our life. We have to be willing to be honest. Say, Lord, there are some things that need to be dealt with. We've got to be willing to inspect this breach. Never have we lived in a day, listen to what I say now, never have we lived in a day when dishonesty was so accepted. Am I right now? I mean, my goodness, you go around this world, go to Washington, D.C., the town is filled with people that have made a career out of lying. And it's not just there, it's in the everyday, it's in the breadbasket, it's in middle America, it's in your backyard and mine. Lying is thought nothing of today. Do you know why that is? No man will ever treat others any better than he treats God. You hear me? No man will ever treat others any better than he treats God. If we're willing to lie to God, we'll lie to anybody. So we lie to ourselves, we lie to the Lord, we lie to others, and we keep up this false image like everything's okay. When we know in the heart of our hearts that there's something wrong in our life, we know there's a breach in the wall, we know we're not walking like we used to walk and talking like we used to talk. But if we admit it, listen carefully, if we admit it, we've got to do something about it. That's why we keep lying to ourselves. If we admit it, we've got to do something about it. If we admit it, we've got to get along with God and get it settled, and we don't want to let go of whatever that thing is in our life. We've got to be willing to inspect the breach. Look at verse number 17. I want you to notice what it says. Uh, The Bible says in verse number 17, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. You can almost hear, and there's other places in the book of Nehemiah where it's more vivid, but here you can almost hear it in Nehemiah's voice as he pleads with the Jews that there is a work to be done and a job to accomplish. He says, do you not look around and see this? You can tell the distress that he's in. Let me say that not only do we need to inspect a breach, but we need to embrace a burden. It's got to become important to us. Listen to me tonight. Until our relationship with Christ becomes important enough for us to be concerned over, we're never going to grow. We have become, in modern day Christianity, so apathetic. We have just become used to being mediocre. Do you know that Christ didn't save us to be mediocre? The Bible calls us a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, I want you to be honest with yourself tonight, and I'm going to be honest with myself. Could we really describe ourselves as being zealous of good works? 
You say, what does zealous mean, preacher? How excited do you have to be to be zealous? When Christ was in the temple and He cleansed the temple, when He braided the cord and drove out the money changers, uh, that was in prophetic fulfillment of an Old Testament verse that said this, uh, the zeal of the Lord's house hath eaten me up. When people describe the passion that our Lord had, uh, the indignation that He had, when He flipped over the tables, when He drove the men out of there, as, as as indignant and as righteous and as excited and as passionate and as zealous as He was then, that ought to be the same measure of zeal that we have under good works. That's what zeal is. Zeal is unbridled passion. It is the willingness to push and to succeed without making excuses. We've got to become zealous of these things. I like what Paul says when he describes repentance. And I believe it's the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, You know, he's describing the sorrow and all the things that accompany repentance and the, uh, the sorrowing that they had after a godly sword. And you know what he says concerning it? He says, yea, what vengeance. That's what he says about the repentance that they had exhibited at the church at Corinth. Yea, what vengeance. I've always liked that language, Brother Ralph, because you know what that puts in my mind? Their attitude concerning their sin was they wanted to get revenge on the devil, their flesh, and on the world. They had such passion that they considered it their personal agenda to get sin out of their lives and to live for Jesus Christ. It'd be good if a lot of those agendas that we've got for a lot of foolishness, if we kick those to the curb and made the cause of Christ and the cause of holiness and the cause of separation and sanctification, made that our agenda in our life. You know what it is when a man has an agenda? That means that that everything he does works towards that angle what his agenda is. Everything he does. He don't just do one or two things about it. He don't do something on this day and then take a day off. Everything he does works towards that angle. That's the agenda that we ought to have. Everything we do ought to work towards growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got to, we've got to get to the place. Until sin bothers us, we're not going to get serious. One old saint put it this way. He said, until you're broken over your sin, you'll never be broken from your sin. And until, Do you know why God used Elijah? Elijah was a man of like passions, as you and I are. That's what the book of James says. And what does that mean when it says a man of like passions? It means he was flesh and bone. He made mistakes. He was weak. He was frail. I know we all think of Elijah as this big, strapping, burly, handsome man. It's because he had a beard. Amen? Isn't that right, Brother Paul? That's why we think of that. Of course, he must have been good looking, right? But we think of this man that is just absolutely... I mean, we, we think of, uh, of a man with a, a backbone of iron. And we think of a man that had a spine like a saw log. And I mean, he's just this absolute formidable being. But the Bible says he was like passions as we are. Why did God use him? What made Elijah who he was? I'll tell you what made Elijah who he was. Elijah hated sin just like God hates sin. It grieved Elijah that the children of Israel were living in sin. Elijah was a Tishbite, wandered out of the wilderness and on to go or God's holy pages of Scripture. He could have stayed in the wilderness. He never had to enter into a public ministry. But I believe two things beckoned him to do so. One was the call of God, but another was the concern over the nation of Israel. It bothered him to see his brethren living in sin. He had a passion about it. Sin bothered him. And our problem today is we've been so desensitized to it through exposure to the world, through through acquiescence to our flesh, that sin just don't bother us like it used to. 
Nowadays, my goodness, nowadays, you go in summertime. If you used to go to a lot of shopping outlet malls, uh, you'd see enough skin, you'd have had to pay a nickel for it 50 years ago. Isn't that right? You can turn on the TV and see stuff that would have been scrambled out 30 years ago. And we accept it. Why? We've been desensitized. Little by little. Little by little. And now it doesn't even bother us. It doesn't even affect us anymore. We don't, we don't care anymore. We've got to get to the place where it bothers us that there's some things wrong in our life. I want you to notice a third thing. We've got to be willing to inspect a breach, see if there's a problem in our life. We've got to be willing to embrace a burden. But then look at verse number 18. The Bible says, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. We've got to be willing to endeavor to build. We've got to be willing. And listen, I, we talk a lot about the work that Christ does in us and through us. And that's important. I don't want to underemphasize that. We can't do this uh, through the arm of the flesh. It fails us every time. It's not by might nor by power, but my spirit, saith the Lord. I understand that the Christian life is one that is not lived through willpower, but it's lived through submission and surrender to the Holy Ghost. And I'm not trying to de-emphasize that. But do you know that there is a burden of responsibility that's on me and you? I mean, if, 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 the, if the athletic uh, manufacturers can, can take the slogan, just do it, then you and I as Christians ought to understand there's some things that we just need to man up or woman up and do. We shouldn't do it. We don't need to make excuses. We just need to do it. Most of us, if, if we were as faithful to church as we are to the Lord, we'd have been fired within a week. Most of us, listen, most of us, if, if our job was selling vacuum cleaners and we tried to uh, talk about vacuum cleaners as much as we talk about the Lord, we would have starved to death by now. The fact is, we've got to quit making excuses and just do it. Just move forward and just go. You know, the Bible says that we're to purify our hearts. Purify our hearts, uh, ye sinners. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. It doesn't say pray that the Lord will do it. It says for us to do it. Now, I understand we're not capable without the Lord, but I also understand that there is a responsibility that's put on us. A lot of us are waiting for the Lord to take something away from us that we don't want to let go of. We're waiting for God to do something in our life while we're digging our heels in. We're waiting for God to show us something while we've shut our eyes to it. And we've got to be willing to build. We've got to be willing to say, Lord, if you'll show me, I'll do it. If you'll command me, I'll do it. Lord, if you'll make it known to me, then I'll go. I'll do it. And if the Lord has already made it known to you, then it's on you to do it. Not to wait for somebody to ask you or to tell you. Not to wait for the bottom to fall out until you're forced to do it. But to move. if God's dealt with you about sin in your life, that ought to be enough. You ought not have to wait until it busts up your home to deal with it. That ought to be enough for God to deal with you about it. You ought not have to wait until sin comes out into the open and embarrasses you and makes you pariah to those that are around you if you do something about it. If God's dealt with you about it, you ought to obey Him and get it out of your life. If uh, something in your life, if you've let something slide, and I, you know, we're all bent towards backsliddenness. Every one of us, we all, I don't care who you are, if you live your life without checks and balances, without an accountability to the Lord God Almighty, every one of us will spiral towards sin and towards the world and towards backsliddenness. You say, oh, but preacher, I'm sanctified. Yeah, maybe positionally you are, but practically you're just like me, friend. You're rotten as they come. I mean, the Lord may look at you and see the blood, and hallelujah, friend, but I can look at you and see a lot of other things too, and so can other people around you. 
we may be forgiven, uh, but that don't mean that we don't have to push forward for Jesus Christ. Our salvation is not based upon our effort, but our separation is sure based upon our effort. What Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ living in us is not based upon our effort, but our living for Him is based upon our effort. We've got to be willing to work. We've got to be willing to obey. If God's dealt with you about your prayer time, then you need to do something about your prayer time. You say, it's not easy. Well, of course not. Nothing worth doing is. Amen? Of course not. not. Nothing that goes against your flesh is easy to do. But if God's dealt with you about it, that ought to be enough. You ought to obey Him. If God's dealt with you about reading your Bible, studying your Bible, you ought to make time, you ought to do it. You say, I ain't got time. Well, you need to make time. You've got to cut something out. You say, preacher, that's mean. Well, take it up with the Lord. He's the one that dealt with you about it. If He dealt with you about it, you ought to obey Him. You ought to mind Him. You ought to submit yourself to Him. We've got to be willing to endeavor to build. I want to say a word about these two characters, Brother Ralph, Sanballat and Tobiah. Everybody asks me if my name's Tobias. It's not. It's Toby. <laughs> I don't have some big, long fancy. It's just Toby. And everybody always says, and I, I've told most of you all this, but I, people will say, what's your name? And I'll say Toby. And they always squeal. They always go, oh, I had a dog named Toby. <laughs> Thanks. I always want to ask them what their name is, and, and I always want to say, oh, I had a kidney stone named that, amen? But uh, this fellow named Tobiah uh, and Sanballat, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite. These are the adversaries to the work that's being done. We've got to be willing to inspect a breach. We've got to be willing uh, to embrace a burden. We've got to be willing to endeavor to battle. But we've got to be willing to engage, engage in the battle. You go to do anything for Jesus Christ, there's going to be a struggle and a fight. I don't care what it is. The devil is not going to let you do it easily. Your flesh, even if the devil didn't bother you, your flesh would give you a fit because you're rotten like I am, amen? I mean, my worst enemy is the fellow I'm looking at in the morning every time when I wake up. That person in the mirror, that's my worst enemy. And it's going to take effort and it's going to take a fight. You'll be amazed when you start serving God how it'll seem like the forces of evil will set themselves against you. And you know what they do? They do. I'd be worried if they didn't. It would mean you're on their side. <laughs> Amen? I mean, any old dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to swim against the current. Anybody can go the easy path and the easy route. And chances are, if you're not going head-to-head with the devil, you may be headed in the same direction he is. When you start to live for Jesus Christ, you're going to find, I don't know what it is, and, I, and I'm not, I don't have chapter or verse for this, but man, I can give you story after story. Uh, I tell you, the quickest way to start getting busted radiators and flat tires and uh, leaky roofs, and I can tell you the quickest way to start getting uh, fights with people around you, amen, and, and uh, you know, bills sent out to debt collectors, you start living for Jesus Christ, you'll have your share of heartaches and bumps in the road. You start living for Jesus Christ, and sometimes it's like the bottom falls out. Ain't never had a speeding ticket in your life. You start serving God, all of a sudden you're going to get one, amen? You're going to get a flat tire. Something's going to come up. Why is that? The devil's trying to get you in the flesh. He knows you can't serve Jesus Christ if you're in the flesh. Nothing that's done in the flesh is profitable uh, or of any worth or of any merit. We can't do anything for Christ in our own strength or through our own flesh. So if he can get you in the flesh, he has essentially handicapped you to walk for Jesus Christ. He's crippled you in your walk for him. Uh, We've got to understand it's going to come with some controversy and some contention. We have to be willing to engage in the battle. Let me give you one thing and then I'm done. Uh, We've got to, if we do all these things, then we're going to enjoy the blessing that comes from them.
Uh, Nehemiah says at the end of the chapter, in verse number 20, Lord will prosper us. Lord will prosper us. Let me say that you'll never spend time in prayer that's not well spent. You'll never spend time in your Bible that's not well spent. You'll never give the gospel to the wrong person or spend time giving the gospel that it's not well spent. You'll never work on your relationship with Jesus Christ, but what it benefits you. That's not to say that there won't be troubles and trials. Of course there will be. All they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But listen to me. If you're ever going to have the relationship with Christ that you need, you're going to have to do these things. But if you do these things, oh my, the sweet fellowship that you enjoy with the Lord. Sweet fellowship. You can hear the devil don't like me talking about that sweet fellowship, does he? He don't mind you hearing about the battle. He just don't want you hearing about the the victory that comes from it. The fact is, it is a blessing walking with the Lord. The greatest thrill in my life has been seeing, and God's, God's blessed me to do some incredible things. God's blessed me in some mighty ways, but there's no greater blessing like walking with the Lord. Having the fellowship with Him, having a peace which passeth all understanding, knowing what it is to get alone with God and have church. <laughs> Amen. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you looking at me like you're calf looking at a new gate, but some of you know what it's like to have church when you ain't at church. Some of you know what it's like to be uh, in the car with God talking and, and God just to sweep in and meet with you. Where does that come from? Well, that comes from repairing the breaches. That comes from maintaining the walk. And then some of you know what it's like to get out in the storms of life and to know you're on the same boat as the Lord and to have Him speak peace to a circumstance. Where does that come from? That comes from repairing the breaches. It comes from maintaining our walk with the Lord, the fellowship that we can have with Him. I hope tonight God's dealt with your heart. He's dealt with mine, I promise you. If God's spoken to your heart, I want you to do business with Him.